Part One of Chapter Eight, from Inkovi to Esun, of Travels in West Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa, by Mary H. Kingsley, Part One of Chapter Eight, from Inkovi to Esun. Concerning the way in which the voyager goes from the island of Mfeta to no one knows exactly where, in doubtful and bad company, and of what this led to, and giving also some accounts of the great forest and of those people that live therein. I will not bore you with my diary in detail regarding our land journey, because the water-washed little volume attributive to this period is mainly full of reports of law cases, for reasons hereinafter to be stated, and at night, when passing through this bit of country, I was usually too tired to do anything more than make an entry such as 5S 4RANE Ebony T 1 to 50, etc., etc., entries that require amplification to explain their significance, and I will proceed to explain. Our first day's march was a very long one. Path in the ordinary acceptance of the term there was none. Hour after hour, mile after mile, we passed on in the undergloom of the great forest. The pace made by the fans, who are infinitely the most rapid Africans I have ever come across, severely tired the Ajumba, who are canoe-men, and who had been as fresh as paint, after their exceedingly long days paddling from Arevuma to Mfeta. Ngota, the Igalwa interpreter, felt pumped, and said as much very early in the day. I regretted very much having brought him, for from a mixture of nervous exhaustion arising from our Mfeta experiences, and a touch of chill, he had almost entirely lost his voice, and I feared would fall sick. The fans were evidently quite at home in the forest, and strode on over fallen trees and rocks with an easy graceful stride. What saved us weaklings was the fans' appetites. Every two hours they sat down, and had a snack of a pound or so of meat and a guma apiece, followed by a pipe of tobacco. We used to come up with them at these halts. Ingota and the Ajumba used to sit down and rest with them, and I also for a few minutes for rest and chat, and then I would go on alone, thus getting a good start. I got a good start, in the other meaning of the word, on the afternoon of the first day, when descending into a ravine. I saw in the bottom, wading and rolling in the mud, a herd of five elephants. I remembered, hastily, that your one chance when charged by several elephants is to dodge them round trees, working downwind all the time, until they lose smell and sight of you, then to lie quiet for a time and go home. It was evident, from the utter unconcern of these monsters, that I was downwind now, so I had only to attend to dodging, and I promptly dodged around a tree and lay down. Seeing they still displayed no emotion on my account, 
and, fascinated by the novelty of the scene, I crept forward from one tree to another, until I was close enough to have hit the nearest one with a stone, and spats of mud, which they sent flying with their stamping and wallowing, came flap-flap among the bushes covering me. One big fellow had a nice pair of forty pounds or so tusks on him, singularly straight, and another had one big curved tusk and one broken one. Some of them lay right down like pigs in the deeper part of the swamp. Some drew up trunkfuls of water and syringed themselves and each other, and every one of them indulged in a good rub against a tree. Presently, when they had had enough of it, they all strolled off upwind through the bush in Indian file, now and then breaking off a branch, but leaving singularly little dead water for their tonnage and breadth of beam. When they had gone, I rose up, turned round to find the men, and trod on Kiva's back then and there, full and fair, and fell sideways down the steep hillside until I fetched up among some roots. It seems Kiva had come on after his meal before the others, and seeing the elephants and being a born hunter, had crawled like me down to look at them. He had not expected to find me there, he said. I do not believe he gave a thought of any sort to me in the presence of these fascinating creatures, and so he got himself trodden on. I suggested to him we should pile the baggage and go and have an elephant hunt. He shook his head reluctantly, saying, Cor, cor, like a depressed rook, and explained we were not strong enough. There were only three fans. The Ajumba and Ingota did not count, and, moreover, that we had not brought sufficient ammunition, owing to the baggage having to be carried, and the ammunition that we had must be saved for other game than elephant, for we might meet war before we met the Rembwe River. We had by now joined the rest of the party, and were all soon squattering about on our own account in the elephant bath. It was shocking, bad going like a ploughed field exaggerated by a terrific nightmare. It pretty nearly pulled all the legs off me, and to this hour I cannot tell you, if it is best to put your foot into a footmark, a young pond, I mean, about the size of the bottom of a Madeira work armchair, or whether you should poise yourself on the rim of the same and stride forward to its other bank, boldly and hopefully. The footmarks and the places where the elephants had been rolling were by now filled with water, and the mud underneath was in places hard and slippery. In spite of my determination to preserve an awesome and unmoved calm while among these dangerous savages, I had to give way and laugh explosively to see the portly powerful pagan suddenly convert himself into a quadruped while Grey Shirt poised himself on one heel, and waved his other leg in the air to advertise to the assembled nations that he was about to sit down, was irresistible. No one made such palaver about taking a seat as Grey Shirt. I did it repeatedly without any fuss to speak of. That lordly elephant hunter, the great wiki, would, I fancy, have strode over safely, and with dignity, but the man who was in front of him spun round on his own axis and flung his arms around the fan, and they went to earth together, 
The heavy load on Wiki's back drove them into the mud like a pile-driver. However, we got through in time, and after I had got up the other side of the ravine, I saw the fan let the ajumba go on, and were busy searching themselves for something. I followed the ajumba, and before I joined them felt a fearful, pricking irritation. Investigation of the affected part showed a tick of terrific size, with its head embedded in the flesh. Pursuing this interesting subject, I found three more, and had awfully hard work to get them off, and painful, too, for they give one not only a feeling of irritation at their holding-on place, but a streak of rheumatic feeling, pain, up from it. On completing operations I went on and came upon the ajumba, in a state more proved of by praxiteles than by the general public nowadays. They had found out about elephant ticks, so I went on and got an excellent start for the next stage. By this time, shortly after noon, on the first day, we had struck into a mountainous and rocky country, and also struck a track, a track you had to keep your eye on, or you lost it in a minute, but still a guide as to direction. The forest trees here were mainly ebony and great hardwood trees, with no palms save my old enemy, the climbing palm, Calamus, as usual, going on its long excursions up one tree and down another, bursting into a plume of fronds, and in the middle of each plume one long spike sticking straight up, which was an unopened frond, whenever it got a gleam of sunshine running along the ground over anything it meets, rock or fallen timber, all alike, its long, dark-colored, rope-like stem simply furred with thorns. Immense must be the length of some of these climbing plants. One tree I noticed that day that had hanging from its summit a good one hundred and fifty feet above us a long, straight, rope-like palm stem. The character of the whole forest was very interesting. Sometimes for hours we passed among thousands upon thousands of grey-wide columns of uniform height, about one hundred to one hundred and fifty feet. At the top of these the boughs branched out and interlaced among each other, forming a canopy or ceiling which dimmed the light even of the equatorial sun to such an extent that no undergrowth could thrive in the gloom. The statement of the struggle for existence was published here in plain figures, but it was not, as in our climate, a struggle against climate mainly, but an internecine war from overpopulation. Now and again we passed among vast stems of buttressed trees, sometimes enormous in girth, and from their faraway summits hung great bush-ropes, some as straight as plumb-lines, others coiled round and intertwined among each other, until one could fancy one was looking on some mighty battle between armies of gigantic serpents that had been arrested at its height by some magic spell. All these bush-ropes were as bare of foliage as a ship's wire-rigging, but a good many had thorns. I was very curious as to how they got up straight and investigation showed me that many of them were carried up with a growing tree. The only true climbers were the calamus and the rubber vine, Landolphia, 
both of which employ hook tackle. Some stretches of this forest were made up of thin, spindly-stemmed trees of great height, and among these stretches I always noticed the ruins of some forest giant, whose death by lightning or by his superior height, having given the demoniac tornado wind an extra grip on him, had allowed sunlight to penetrate the lower regions of the forest, and then evidently the seedlings and saplings, who had for years been living a half-starved life for light, shot up. They seemed to know that their one chance lay in getting with the greatest rapidity to the level of the top of the forest. No time to grow fat in the stem, no time to send out side branches or any of those vanities. Up, up to the light level, and he among them who reached it first won in this game of life or death, for when he gets there he spreads out his crown of upper branches and shuts off the life-giving sunshine from his competitors, who pale off and die, or remain dragging on an attenuated existence, waiting for another chance, and waiting sometimes for centuries. There must be tens of thousands of seeds which perish before they get their chance, but the way the seeds of the hardwood African trees are packed, as it were in cases specially made durable, is very wonderful. Indeed, the ways of providence here are wonderful in their strange dual intention to preserve and to destroy, but on the whole, as Pierre Gint truly observes, in Gotterworth nein das it ernicht. We saw this influence of light on a large scale as soon as we reached the open hills and mountains of the Sierra del Cristal, and had to pass over those fearful avalanche-like timber falls on their steep sides. The worst of these lay between Efoua and Igaja, where we struck a part of the range that was exposed to the southeast. These falls had evidently arisen from the tornadoes, which from time to time have hurled down the gigantic trees, whose hold on the superficial soil over the sheets of hard bedrock was insufficient, in spite of all the anchors they had out in the shape of roots and buttresses, and all their rigging in the shape of bush-ropes. Down they had come, crushing and dragging down with them those near them or bound to them by the great tough climbers. Getting over these falls was perilous, not to say scratchy work. One or another member of our party always went through, and precious uncomfortable going it was, I found, when I tried it in one above Egaja, ten or twelve feet of crashing, creaking timber, and then flump onto a lot of rotten, wet debris, with more snakes and centipedes among it than you had any immediate use for, even though you were a collector. But there you had to stay, while Wiki, who was a most critical connoisseur, selected from the surrounding forest a bush-rope that he regarded as the correct remedy for the case and then up you were hauled through the sticks you had turned the wrong way on your down journey. The duke had a bad fall, going twenty feet or so before he found the rubbish heap, while Fika, who went through with a heavy load on his back, took us on one occasion half an hour to recover, and when we had just got him to the top, and able to cling on to the upper sticks, Wiki, who had been superintending operations, slipped backwards and went through on his own account. The bush-rope we had been hauling on was too worn with the load to use again, 
and we just hauled Wiki out with the first one we could drag down and cut, and Wiki, when he came up, said we were reckless and knew nothing of bush ropes, which shows how ungrateful an African can be. It makes the perspiration run down my nose whenever I think of it. The sun was out that day. We were nearly situated on the equator, and the air was semi-solid, with the stinking exhalations from the swamps with which the mountain chain is fringed and intersected, and we were hot enough without these things because of the violent exertion of getting these twelve to thirteen stone gentlemen up among us again, and the fine varied exercise of getting over the fall on our own account. When we got into the cool forest beyond it was delightful, particularly if it happened to be one of those lovely stretches of forest, gloomy down below, but giving hints that far away above us was a world of bloom and scent and beauty, which we saw as much of as earthworms in a flower-bed. Here and there the ground was strewn with great cast blossoms, thick, wax-like, glorious cups of orange and crimson and pure white, each one of which was in itself a handful, and which told us that some of the trees around us were showing a glory of color to heaven alone. Sprinkled among them were bunches of pure Stephanotis-like flowers, which said that the gaunt bush-ropes were rubber vines that had burst into flower when they had seen the sun. These flowers we came across in nearly every type of forest all the way, for rubber abounds here. I will weary you no longer now with the different kinds of forest, and only tell you I have left you off several. The natives have separate names for seven different kinds, and these might, I think, be easily run up to nine. A certain sort of friendship soon arose between the fans and me. We each recognized that we belonged to that same section of the human race with whom it is better to drink than to fight. We knew we would each have killed the other if sufficient inducement were offered, and so we took a certain amount of care that the inducement should not arise. Grey-shirt and Pagan also, their trade friends, the fans treated with an independent sort of courtesy. But silence, singlet, the passenger, and above all Ingota, they openly did not care a row of pins for. And I have small doubt that had it not been for us, other three, they would have killed and eaten these very amiable gentlemen with as much compunction as an English sportsman would kill as many rabbits. They on their part hated the fan, and never lost an opportunity of telling me these fan be bad men too much. I must not forget to mention the other member of our party, a fan gentleman with the manners of a duke and the habits of a dustbin. He came with us quite uninvited by me, and never asked for any pay. I think he only wanted to see the fun, and drop in for a fight if there was one going on, and to pick up the pieces, generally. He was evidently a man of some importance from the way the others treated him, and, moreover, he had a splendid gun, with a gorilla skin sheath for its lock, and ornamented all over its stock with brass nails. His costume consisted of a small piece of dirty rag round his loins, and whenever we were going through dense undergrowth or wading a swamp, he wore that filament tucked up scandalously short. 
Whenever we were sitting down in the forest, having one of our nondescript meals, he always sat next to me and appropriated the tin. Then he would fill his pipe, and turning to me, with the easy grace of aristocracy, would say what may be translated as, "'My dear princess, could you favor me with a lucifer?' I used to say, "'My dear duke, charmed, I'm sure,' and give him one ready lit." I dared not trust him with a box hole, having a personal conviction that he would have kept it. I asked him what he would do, suppose I was not there with a box of lucifers, and he produced a bush cow's horn with a neat wood lid tied on with tie-tie, and from out of it he produced a flint and steel and demonstrated. The first day in the forest we came across a snake a beauty, with a new red-brown and yellow-patterned velvety skin, about three feet six inches long, and as thick as a man's thigh. Ngota met it, hanging from a bough, and shot backwards like a lobster. Ngota, having among his many weaknesses a rooted horror of snakes. This snake, the Ogowe natives all hold in great aversion. For the bite of other sorts of snakes they profess to have remedies, but for this they have none. If, however, a native is stung by one, he usually conceals the fact that it was this particular kind, and tries to get any chance the native doctor's medicine may give. The duke stepped forward, and with one blow flattened its head against the tree with his gun-butt, and then folded the snake up and got as much of it as possible into his bag, while the rest hung dangling out. Ngota not being able to keep ahead of the duke, his grace's pace being stiff, went to the extreme rear of the party, so that other people might be killed first if the snake returned to life, as he surmised it would. He fell into other dangers from this caution, but I cannot chronicle Ngota's afflictions in full without running this book into an old-fashioned folio size. We had the snake for supper, that is to say, the fan and I, the others would not touch it, although a good snake, properly cooked, is one of the best meats one gets out here, far and away better than the African fowl. The fans also did their best to educate me in every way. They told me their names for things, while I told them mine. I found several European words already slightly altered in use among them, such as a muck, a mug, alas! a glass, a tumbler. I do not know whether their ami, a person addressed or spoken of, is French or not. It may come from anwi, mpongwe for ye, you. They use it, as a rule, in addressing a person after the phrase they always open up conversation with, azuna, listen, or I am speaking. They also showed me many things, how to light a fire from the pith of a certain tree, which was useful to me in after life, but they rather overdid this branch of instruction one way and another. For example, Wiki had, as above indicated, a mania for bush ropes and a marvellous eye and knowledge of them. He would pick out from among the thousands surrounding us now one of such peculiar suppleness that you could wind it round anything, like a strip of cloth, and as strong withal as a halser or again another which has a certain stiffness, combined with a slight elastic spring, 
excellent for hauling, with the ease and accuracy of a lady who picks out the particular twisted strand of embroidery silk from a multicolored tangled ball. He would go into the bush after them while other people were resting, and particularly after the sort which, when split, is bright yellow and very supple and excellent to tie round loads. On one occasion, between Egaja and Desun, he came back from one of these quests, and wanted me to come and see something very quietly. I went, and we crept down into a rocky ravine, on the other side of which lay one of the outermost Egaja plantations. When we got to the edge of the cleared ground, we lay down, and wormed our way, with elaborate caution, among a patch of cocoa. Wiki first, I following in his trail. After about fifty yards of this, Wiki sank flat, and I saw before me some thirty yards off, busily employed in pulling down plantains and other depredations, five gorillas, one old male, one young male, and three females. One of these had clinging to her, a young fellow, with beautiful wavy black hair with just a kink in it. The big male was crouching on his haunches, with his long arms hanging down on either side, with the backs of his hands on the ground, the palms upwards. The elder lady was tearing to pieces and eating a pineapple, while the others were at the plantains, destroying more than they ate. They kept up a sort of a whinnying, chattering noise, quite different from the sound I have heard gorillas give when enraged, or from the one you can hear them giving when they are what the natives call dancing at night. I noticed that their reach of arm was immense, and that when they went from one tree to another they squattered across the open ground in a most inelegant style, dragging their long arms with the knuckles downwards. I should think the big male and female were over six feet each. The others would be from four to five. I put out my hand and laid it on Wiki's gun to prevent him from firing, and he— thinking I was going to fire, gripped my wrist. I watched the gorillas with great interest for a few seconds, until I heard Wiki make a peculiar small sound, and looking at him saw his face was working in an awful way as he clutched his throat with his hand violently. Heavens, think I, this gentleman's going to have a fit, it's lost, we are entirely this time. He rolled his head to and fro, and then buried his face into a heap of dried rubbish at the foot of a plantain stem, clasped his hands over it, and gave an explosive sneeze. The gorillas let go all, raised themselves up for a second, gave a quaint sound between a bark and a howl, and then the ladies and the young gentlemen started home. The old male rose to his full height. It struck me at the time this was a matter of ten feet at least, but for scientific purposes allowance must be made for a lady's emotions, and looked straight towards us, or rather towards where that sound came from. Wiki went off into a paroxysm of falsetto sneezes, the like of which I have never heard, nor evidently had the gorilla, who doubtless thinking, as one of his black co-relatives would have thought, that the phenomenon favoured Duppy, 
went off after his family with a celerity that was amazing the moment he touched the forest and disappeared as they had, swinging himself along through it from bough to bough, in a way that convinced me that, given the necessity of getting about in tropical forests, man has made a mistake in getting his arms shortened. I have seen many wild animals in their native wilds, but never have I seen anything to equal gorillas going through bush. It is a graceful, powerful, superbly perfect hand trapeze performance. After this sporting adventure we returned, as I usually return from a sporting adventure, without measurements or the body. Our first day's march though the longest, was the easiest, though, providentially, I did not know this at the time. From my warman road-walks I judge it was well twenty-five miles. It was easiest, however, from its lying for the greater part of the way through the gloomy type of forest. All day long we never saw the sky once. The earlier part of the day we were steadily going uphill, here and there making a small descent, and then up again, until we came on to what was apparently a long ridge, for on either side of us we could look down into deep, dark, ravine-like valleys. Twice or thrice we descended into these to cross them, finding at their bottom a small or large swamp, with a river running through its midst. Those rivers all went to Lake Isingo. We had to hurry, because Kiva, who was the only one among us who had been to Ifowa, said that unless we did, we should not reach Efuwa that night. I said, why not stay for bush? Not having contracted any love for a night in a fan town by the experience of Mfeta, moreover the fans were not sure that after all the whole party of us might not spend the evening at Efuwa, when we did get there, simmering in its cooking-pots. Ngota, I may remark, had no doubt on the subject at all, and regretted having left Mrs. N. Keenly and the Andande store sincerely. But these fans are a fine sporting tribe, and allowed they would risk it. Besides, they were almost certain they had friends at a foe, and, in addition, they showed me trees scratched in a way that was magnification of the condition of my own cat's pet table-leg at home, demonstrating leopards in the vicinity. I kept going, as it was my only chance, because I found I stiffened if I sat down, and they always carefully told me the direction to go in when they sat down. With their superior pace they soon caught me up, and then passed me, leaving me and Ingota, and sometimes Singlet and Pagan behind, we in our turn overtaking them, with this difference that they were sitting down when we did so. About five o'clock I was off ahead and noticed a path which I had been told I should meet with, and when met with I must follow. The path was slightly indistinct, but by keeping my eye on it I could see it. Presently I came to a place where it went out, but appeared again on the other side of a clump of underbush fairly distinctly. I made a short cut for it, and the next news was I was in a heap, on a lot of spikes some fifteen feet or so below ground level, at the bottom of a bag-shaped game-pit. It is at these times you realize the blessing of a good thick skirt. Had I paid heed to the advice of many people in England who ought to have known better, and did not do it themselves, and adopted masculine garments, 
I should have been spiked to the bone and done for. Whereas, save for a good many bruises, here I was with the fullness of my skirt tucked under me, sitting on nine ebony spikes, some twelve inches long in comparative comfort, howling lustily to be hauled out. The duke came along first and looked down at me. I said, "'Get a bush-rope and haul me out.' He grunted and sat down on a log. The passenger came next, and he looked down. "'You kill?' says he. "'Not much,' says I. "'Get a bush-rope and haul me out.' "'No fit,' says he, and sat down on the log. Presently, however, Kiva and Wiki came up, and Wiki went, and selected the one and only bush-rope suitable to haul an English lady, of my exact complexion, age, and size, out of that one particular pit. They seemed rare round there from the time he took, and I was just casting about in my mind as to what method would be best to employ in getting up the smooth yellow sandy clay in curved walls, when he arrived with it and I was out in a twinkling, and very much ashamed of myself, until Silence, who was then leading, disappeared through the path before us with a despairing yell. Each man then pulled the skin cover of his gun-lock, carefully looked to see if things there were all right, and ready, loosened his knife in its snake-skin sheath, and then we set about hauling poor Silence out, binding him up where necessary, with cool green leaves, for he, not having a skirt, had got a good deal frayed at the edges on those spikes. Then we closed up, for the fans said these pits were symptomatic of the immediate neighborhood of Efoa. We sounded our ground as we went into a thick plantain patch, through which we could see a great clearing in the forest and the low huts of a big town. We charged into it, going right through the guard-house gateway, at one end in single file, as its narrowness obliged us, and into the street-shaped town, and formed ourselves into as imposing a looking party as possible in the centre of the street. The Ifowarians regarded us with much amazement, and the women and children cleared off into the huts, and took stock of us through the door-holes. They were but few men in the town, the majority, we subsequently learned, being away after elephants but there were quite sufficient left to make a crowd in a ring round us. Fortunately, Wiki and Kiva's friends were present, and as a result of the confabulation, one of the chiefs had his house cleared out for me. It consisted of two apartments almost bare of everything save a pile of boxes and a small fire on the floor, some little bags hanging from the roof-poles, and a general supply of insects. The inner room contained nothing save a hard plank, raised on four short pegs from the earth floor. End of Part 1 of Chapter 8 From Inkovi to Esun Read by Kehinde of Bahatrek.com